right? Like when the Department of Education investigated school districts for the disciplinary disparities, they instructed their investigators to look into things even as simple as a loss of recess privileges for possible uh, possible bias in teacher decision making. So you're seeing a system where all quote unquote exclusionary discipline uh, now comes with reams of paperwork. That To the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. With me today, Max Eden. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Before joining the Manhattan Institute, he was a program manager of the Education Policy Studies Department at the American Enterprise Institute. His research interests include early education, school choice, and federal education policy. He was co-editor with Frederick M. Hess of the Every Student Succeeds Act, what it means for schools, systems, and states. Max's work has appeared in scholarly and popular outlets such as the Journal of School Choice, Encyclopedia of Education, Economics, and Finance, Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, National Review, Claremont Review of Books, and The Weekly Standard. Max co-authored the book, the best-selling book, Why Meadow Died, the people's and policy, the people and policies that created the Parkland shooter and endanger America students. Max, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, who's in charge of of school safety uh, with with your with your research, everything you've done? Who's who's in charge? Who's calling the shots? Uh, I suppose the answer could either be nobody uh, or unfortunately very distant bureaucrats and advocacy activist organizations whose primary emphasis is on trying to change the numbers to make them look better uh, with the idea that justice and safety will follow. I think in the past we have tended to think about school discipline, school safety as something that the principal was in charge of and maybe the superintendent oversees uh, and you kind of trust that the principal is acting primarily with an eye towards the students in front of him, the teachers in front of him. How, what do I need to do to keep this kid safe, to keep these students safe, to keep things in order? And you kind of trusted that that was, uh, that was where they were looking when making these decisions. Unfortunately, in the past 10 years, just about, uh, we've seen an increasing emphasis kind of from reformers to try to close the so-called school-to-prison pipeline by aggressively lowering suspensions, expulsions, and arrests on the grounds that the disparities there were uh, racially biased and biased by disability. So now principals are operating under a pressure that they're getting from superintendents uh, who are operating in a pressure they get from state education authorities or from groups like the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center with threats of litigation and bad press, or the Department of Education to try to get these numbers down. So the principal is now 
looking with one eye towards the students and teachers around him, uh, and with the other eye looking back over his shoulder, and isn't making concrete, uh, practical decisions solely based on what's good for the kids, but is making it based on what's good for the numbers. Max, something I have uh, seen in um, job postings for educators, for principals, um, that I didn't see a year or two ago, um, a very specific statement, uh, must have experience in social justice, mm -hmm. uh, must be um, sensitive to social justice needs of the district and the community. Now, what I'm not seeing is must be able to identify a reading baseline for all students, must be able to yeah. <clears throat> um, articulate how to measure a change from baseline. All things that are fundamental to education, um, but these very specific statements, which uh, definitely show the hand of what's happening, what you're saying, mm -hmm. um, is it's about, it's about lowering the numbers for suspensions, expulsions. I'm in Wisconsin. And the numbers for suspensions have continued to de decrease. The gap between academic achievement of African-American students and white students uh, continues to grow. Mm -hmm. so, Perhaps not unrelated developments. <laughs> right, right. right. So, so this correlation or causation it, it isn't necessarily proving out uh, with efficacy in, in the statistics in my state. Um, so... Tell me, um, discipline policies, um, what, what gets reported? What, what are districts more or less saying, if I report this, the state's going to be looking at it, the Fed's going to look at it. What, what do they have to really think about before they're going to make that decision to report? Um, <clears throat> before answering that, I want to jump off from an earlier point to kind of get there, right? I mean, what, when you see education uh, job postings, administrative job postings, district bureaucrat job postings, have this new emphasis on social justice, racial equity, kind of buzzwords about, uh, about social justice, and not about things like reading comprehension, baseline levels, lexiles, uh, lexile levels, you're seeing kind of at the school level something, a shift that's occurred in the reform and advocacy community kind of filtered down, right? For, right. for several decades, the logic behind education reform was we see these gaps, we recognize that these gaps uh, reflect broader inequities in society, and our job is to try to figure out how we can push and prod and help schools uh, do their bread and butter better to try to make these gaps smaller. The gaps didn't close as much as they would have liked them to have closed. And at a certain point, I think a lot of education policy advocates kind of changed their prescription. They became less convinced that uh, these were problems outside of society, more convinced that because they hadn't closed the gaps fast enough, the real problem must be within schools. They must be uh, not something that students bring with them to the classroom, but something that happens to students in the classroom. So when we see the the discipline gap, the reading gap, the impetus now is to assume that there's something going on that's wrong in the school <laughs> and to try to change 
uh, attitudes of educators, assuming that that's where the crux of the problem lies. Because what you will hear quite frequently from advocates of discipline reform is that uh, there is no difference in student behavior by you know, racial groups, by disability status. The entire disparity is a product of teacher bias or school practices. So it's incumbent on us to change those as quickly as possible because we see these numbers and these numbers show injustice. We need to address this injustice. Once you have that, you, you have a very numbers-driven approach to assuming progress, right? You assume that if you can lower these apparent gaps, which shouldn't exist in the first place, it's a win-win. You are uh, reducing bias, reducing unfair and prejudiced decisions uh, while, you know, creating a greater sense of justice and safety won't be sacrificed as part of it because these were not proper decisions in the first place. So, um, you know, when you're a teacher at the top line, you know, it, certainly expulsions need to be done with great care. Suspensions uh, are something that you hear from your principal quite frequently that we don't want you to do. Um, you, we need you to do a whole lot of paperwork before you send a student to our office. And the reason we're making you do all this paperwork is fundamentally an extension of that logic. Like We don't trust that your judgment or your instinct will be prudent, will be proper. So before we let you send this kid to our office, check all of these boxes first. Uh, and then once the student's sent to the principal's office, the principal is told by the district administrator uh, either explicitly or implicitly, frequently quite explicitly, um, we need to make sure that these numbers are low and getting lower and we're judging the success of the principals that we see by the way that these numbers change. Uh, in some cases, it, it can go down even to the level of detentions and, uh, you know, loss of recess privileges, right? Like when the Department of Education investigated school districts for the disciplinary disparities, they instructed their investigators to look into things even as simple as a loss of recess privileges for possible, uh, possible bias in teacher decision making. So you're seeing a system where all, quote-unquote, exclusionary discipline uh, now comes with reams of paperwork attached to it, and that paperwork has, has a prejudice behind it that what the teacher wants to do, or her, his or her first instinct, is probably not right. Max, also, um, with state reporting, mm -hmm. I was examining uh, North Carolina's state reporting for school discipline um, instance. Literally, over 100 areas that could be identified from um, uh, a, a fray, right? So mm -hmm. the definition of a fray is an instance of fighting in a public place that disturbs the peace. So you have many areas which are, are similar to other areas. So the question comes up, why do we have 100 areas we can report on, from gambling to afraid to um, you know, bullying to harassment and then fracture it down? And I believe one of the reasons um, that happens right now is even if you have a certain number of events, if you're spreading them over 10 categories, that's a lot different than spreading them over 100 categories. You have maybe have some hills that get reported, but you don't have some mountains. And when I work with superintendents and school administrators and say, look at the data, the data has gotten to be a mile wide and an inch deep. It doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. to them. And as you indicated, um, 
the discretion factor has completely removed, has, has been siphoned from the classroom. Mm-hmm. It used to be the teacher was uh, in charge of classroom rules. Well, we know that's really not the case anymore. My dad was a principal for 35 plus years. I was a school administrator. Things have changed. Um, as you indicated, all of these filter systems are in place right now. And the message it's sending is that we don't trust the discretion of the educator. I believe it's sending that message. Um, and so I want to get into a, a trend that I've been seeing to have you uh, bring perspective to it. But um, for suspensions, so what are you seeing right now in suspension data versus five years, 10 years ago? Where is it trending? And at some point, is it going to just hit a, hit a bottom? Is it going to bottom out? And you know, the, the numbers can only get so good. And actually, Max, I look at a lot of the numbers and the numbers are looking great. I mean, some districts I'll look at and it'll be, we've dropped from, um, you know, 38 suspensions last year down yeah. to one. And yeah. then the question is, are you, but are you, are the, is the school safer? Is the climate better? Are kids, is attendance up? Is truancy changed? Any of that? Well, they don't go. Yeah, it's, I, I don't, it's, in some ways, almost reached the level of comic dishonesty. Um, I <clears throat> kind of my first foray into this was a report right. that I wrote looking at uh, New York City school climate surveys as suspensions were plummeting. Right. right. So suspensions uh, plummeted under De Blasio's discipline reform, which basically uh, said to teachers, uh, "You have to, you know, you can only seek a suspension after the third instance of a certain level of behavior." And then the principal has to send in an application to the superintendent's office, which the superintendent's office can reject, right? So these things go down, or that suspensions go down, student reports of uh, climate problems increase. In one school, I I did a kind of in-depth journalistic foray into the Urban Assembly School of Wildlife Conservation where a student was stabbed and killed by a classmate. And this was a case where the, the school fell into absolute chaos when a new principal, new assistant principal came in and they were told, we expect that you'll have very few suspensions. And they did by not enforcing rules. And the school uh, fell into, uh, it became a place of consistent daily violence. And the, the you know, killing of the student was, was hardly a mistake. Shortly after that happened, there was a spike in suspensions district-wide. Um, and when the chancellor of the New York City schools addressed this spike, he literally he said something very close to, well, yes, now we're seeing a whole bunch of schools uh, you know, report more. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. 
Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Basically acknowledging that a lot of the decrease had been a product of serial underreporting. Yes. And then, of course, ever since then, the numbers go lower and lower. In Washington, D.C., uh, suspensions fell really dramatically by about 40% in two years. They found out that in many schools, the way they were getting suspensions down was by not telling the district office that they were suspending students and then just emailing teachers to say, don't let these students into the school. Um, so I think the numbers have reached a point where they're already nonsense. Um, I, I shouldn't say which district, but I spoke to a teacher's union official in one North Carolina district who intimated to me that the system that the district uses to track suspensions is actually entirely disconnected from the state system <laughs> and that right. district administrators m selectively migrate over certain things from one system to another in order to make it look consistently lower, even as it's maintaining, in that case, a, a pretty stable level in reality. Manipulated uh, statistics, manipulated data. Um, I've also seen it. I have seen uh, districts report zero mm -hmm. out for suspensions. And after having, um, you know, numerous previous years of, of you know, what, whatever, 75, 100, now it goes to zero. And the question, when I investigate it, um, was, is, is this authentically zero or did someone make a data entry mistake? Did someone right. not fill this out? Because that happens um, sometimes. So, but no, it was authentic, but there were other things that were substituting out for suspension. Now, the part that was troubling to me was that the state that this was in did not have any type of filter system. There wasn't a call back to the district saying, you reported your state data for suspensions and you have a zero. And last year you had 112 is that a mistake that zero? Right. And if not, can we send everybody to your district to see the <laughs> miracle that's happening? And there's this, this perception that um, there's, there's a state accountability. There are data um, analysts who are going through this and are picking this out. Or at the very least, there is some algorithm, something in a program which triggers this and sends an email to someone saying, hey, this, this number doesn't seem right. Give a call to the district. That doesn't exist. No. That doesn't exist at all. And uh, that was which is, that was which is the, the the dirty, funny little secret about all of these numbers, right? Like nobody looks at them anyway, really. Right. Right. <laughs> um, the idea is to get these numbers lower on the theory that that's the way that you demonstrate your success to a higher up, which is true to a point, maybe within a school district, whether that's true or not. But when it gets reported up to the state, there's there's nobody from the state that's going to come knocking in. In Miami, as soon as they banned suspensions, they saw thousands of fights stop happening. There were thousands fewer fights from right. one year to the next. And there is, you know, taking aside the question of the prudence and the wisdom of, of you know, banning suspensions for nonviolent offenses, those fights didn't stop. Uh, but nobody from the state knocked on the door. Eventually, NPR wrote an article about it. That article did nothing <laughs> in practice. But... Right. But nobody's looking at these numbers. Yeah, I, and and I'm finding the same. I'm finding the same thing. I, I'm doing uh, data 
work with superintendents, with, with school leaders, and we uncover some things um, that on, on face value are shocking. And again, the question, has anybody contacted you about this? Or, or they'll even discover an error. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, it could be either related also to the number of students with disabilities, and they wonder why their flow-through funding for the district went down and nobody, nobody got back to them. So, so we know that we don't have this oversight mechanism and also, there isn't much incentive to do that because if the numbers are going in the right way, um, you don't want to no, you don't muddy want to the waters, the right? Yeah. You don't want to do that at a state level because you're going to draw scrutiny from the feds. I heard it many times as a school administrator having the state officials speak to us at conferences and say, you know, the state, the feds are coming down on us. You know, we need everybody to be very careful on discipline and very careful on um, uh, serving students in placements outside of the, the district, uh, for example, things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. So, Max, um, I'm familiar with, with a process because um, I, I used it when I was an administrator. I know that it is being used right now. Um, it's called an abeyance agreement. And a, an abeyance agreement is basically a suspended uh discipline measure. So it's either a, a suspended detention, a suspended suspension, a suspended expulsion. We, we hear these things badged as pre-expulsions. There right. are these little nifty agreements that districts put together with their legal counsel. And the, the part of this that is, that is absolutely um, horrifying is you don't have to report any of this data out to anybody. It doesn't go to a local um, database, doesn't go to state, doesn't go to federal, so it doesn't exist on a database. But these are being driven by the attorneys for the school. Okay, they're driven by the attorneys. And I remember my first abeyance agreement. I didn't even know this existed, right? They don't teach you this. In, no, and it, it doesn't really come up in the policy agreement. A lot of what no. you're saying is, <laughs> is newer to me than I would prefer, honestly. It doesn't. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, the, the attorney is there. This, this is a, a practice, and, and the attorney sits down and says, we're, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put this, this uh, paperwork together, and we're going to tell the parent they have the choice to accept this abeyance agreement, and we're looking out in the best interest of their son or daughter. We're going to keep this off the record. Okay, now that's just fancy way for the district saying, we don't want to report this data Anyway, we need to do something, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to give this image. And abeyance agreements, um, they're effective in the fact that parents go along with them. Uh, if, I, if my uh, child has, has uh, done something which uh, otherwise would have warranted a suspension 15 years, 15 years ago, and in, in today it would um, warrant an abeyance agreement, the super or, or the legal counsel is typically present in the room. The parent, the student, the principal, and the legal counsel will say, "This parent, this the district could do this. They could suspend your child. They could go take expulsion. But we have something else, and this will also stay off your son or daughter's record. It's called this abeyance agreement. So this, the principal really wants your child to to not have this on their record, and, and uh, it, you know all of that." So if I'm the parent, I'm thinking, I didn't analyze this for a while until I start, start to talk right. to parents. I said, why would you take this? Because you're giving up your rights and um, just what motivates you? And parents are like, well, the 
big positionality, right? A district, it's a million-dollar building, people with big salaries, degrees, diplomas on the wall. I'm intimidated by it, so I go along with it. They're sending me this deal. And if not, if the parent is coming in and, and thinking, I'm getting this deal because I'm going to go to the school board, I'm going to raise ruckus, and they're giving me this deal. Like, I've earned this deal for my son or daughter. Right. So either way, it happens. But these things are all over the place. They're ubiquitous. Um, and it, it, there's no paper trail, no accountability. It's not a replacement of a suspension. There's no learning objective for how the behavior, uh, a replacement behavior will, will be instituted, um, safety of the student body, nothing. So I, I, it frustrates me to no end um, because as I teach administrators, this is now just an accepted practice with them. Like it right. is just part of their job. And I'm like, it, it's, you don't understand. This is, this is wrong. Many levels, but they've just come into it. They've, they've new superintendents, new principals. This is, this is the landscape. Yeah. No, that's, um, it's very interesting. And it's, it's a, a logical extension of, uh, what I had seen as a troubling trend, but, had a hard time putting my finger on exactly why it would, you know, I couldn't project it all the way to the end. Which one thing that the the Obama administration did in its uh, <clears throat> in its disciplinary initiative, its dear colleague letter, its investigation of school districts, was to basically train parents to uh, come in and counter the decisions, disciplinary decisions made by school administrators uh, and to encourage school districts and encourage states to adopt stronger kind of appeals processes, right? So previously, right. Um, I mean, which in, in a way it, it, it inverts the moral order that one thinks of when one thinks of a school, right? When one thinks of a school as, a as an extension of the community uh, and a place that you trust to instill uh, morals and mores and norms into kids. And you send your kid there, and if your kid gets in trouble, you probably back the school <laughs> in right. this thing because you, you trust the teacher, the principal, knew what they were doing. These, this new shift towards trying to respect the, the due process rights of a student as though you know, getting a one- or two-day suspension were somehow analogous to getting a five- or ten-year prison sentence. Yes, um, changed the valence of that, right? It sets up an oppositional dynamic between the, the parents and the schools where parents are expected, incentivized to come in and countermand the decision of a school district to say, no, my kid did not do this or he did this, but you shouldn't do this to him. And, and there's a kind of a, a moral inversion there that I had been very troubled by because I would like schools to be places where we trust the teachers make the right decisions and we don't parents uh, back them rather than question them. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense because that's not a really tenable long-term situation for a school district to basically assume that any decision that they make, they will face a, a, a possibility of a major problem, major hassle, major administrative problem, maybe even a legal problem uh, or pseudo legal problem with that. So they in turn, by what you're saying, or like countering that entire process by not even having what's recognizably, you know, laws or rules anymore, but kind of lifting 
the way that rule of law totally works and just, you know, rewriting the laws for the kids as they, as they go. Um, and then that, you know, that, you know, maybe I'm making, getting a little bit high in the air here, but that it really inverts kind of just the, the logic of how rules and laws are supposed to work. It's something that should be set with expected consequences, fair enforcement, but now, from what you're saying, it's something that uh, school districts kind of get ahead of to invent as they go. Records matter. Like a record, having a record is not an intrinsically bad thing. Having a record is how a teacher knows who the student is who's coming into his or her classroom in the next year. And so, when you have a student who either through abeyance agreements or through kind of IEP manipulation doesn't accrue a substantial disciplinary record, then the next teacher to get him or her doesn't know who that student is and you're actually doing that student a huge disservice uh, by not informing the teacher of his of his circumstances and possibly doing him a disservice by not letting him have a record that could be used to get him or her additional supports alternative placement if that's possible Um, so you know a record is data and by trying to keep kids from having a record you're effectively destroying student data that should exist for a reason. Um, <clears throat> we're seeing uh, uh, across a lot of states and now a new push by the federal government to try to limit restraint and seclusion. And this is in many cases driven by some high profile viral social media things. You know, you see a you see a video of a kid who's got his you know hands locked in arm and arms locked in handcuffs behind his back or. Uh, you hear some really egregious overreaction, and the policymakers like, right. "Oh my God! Like, we can't have this stuff happening in our schools. Let's really clamp down on it." And a few high-profile instances of bad judgment get used to basically get basically get translated into a broad signal that's sent down to teachers, which is that if you're going to lay a hand on a student, uh, you're going to have to fill out a whole room of paperwork. You're going to have to put yourself in a position of professional risk. Um, <clears throat> if you're even allowed to at all. And so the only circumstances in which you might be allowed to put a hand on a student is imminent physical danger of yourself or other students, and even then maybe not, because how do you define (laughs) imminent physical danger? Um, And so this is a... We don't really have any any data on this, right? Partly there's a data problem around restraint and seclusion, uh, as we kind of spoke about a little before. Like uh, Frequently it's not reported or... And or when you pressure it, when you try to increase reporting requirements around it, uh, you either dramatically de-incentivize and possibly uh, unfairly or unjustly and prudently decrease the use of this technique, or you just incentivize it more to be done behind uh, behind closed doors. But I feel like we're seeing a lot more of the former go on in Oregon, which is a state that went very very aggressive at a state level in reducing exclusionary discipline, especially for students. Uh, with disabilities and also went very aggressive in trying to limit restraint and seclusion. There was a poll by the Oregon Education Association that came out uh, earlier this year showing that 56% of teachers and parents said that their students have experienced at least one room clear during the course of a year. And a room clear was something that I, as an education policy expert uh, with a particular emphasis on discipline safety, I hadn't heard of. Nobody that I speak to in my little D.C. education policy bubble 
had heard of it. <laughs> Uh, but what a room clear is, is when there's a student who is throwing a bad tantrum, if you can't put a hand on him, if you can't put a hand on his shoulder and say, hey, Johnny, what's going on? Like, do you really want to do this? Or if it continues, if you can't, you know, put a firmer hand on that shoulder and say, maybe we should go out of the room because you can't take a kid out of the room without reporting it. Or if he starts to act out towards other students, you can't put two hands on his arms to make sure that he's not uh, going to start swinging them wildly. The I, the thing that's done now is to simply evacuate the entire room, right. which is insanity if you if you think about it. If you like think about the process of there's a kid throwing a tantrum in a classroom, the teacher tells all the students to stand up, file out while this student is doing it with the full expectation they're all going to file back in next to that student later. Um, it's it's an extremely troubling phenomenon that's becoming increasingly normalized because of this policy drive that's predicated on a distrust of teacher. Oh, we can't let a teacher put a hand on a student uh, unless it's entirely necessary. And, and we know what's entirely necessary, and we can do that in law. Um, but that's, it's something that I think is, uh, I fear is dramatically increasing disruption. And it's certainly, it's not good for the student who is throwing that tantrum to <laughs> He sent the message that if you act in this way, the entire world will conform around you and, and let you do as you please. Um, so it's it's a troubling train that's, I think, picking up a lot of steam, both at the state level and also at the federal level. The Secretary of Education issued a, uh, not quite a dear colleague letter, but announced an initiative involving investigations into school districts about their use of it, uh, recommending tools for appropriate practices, kind of prejudicing the idea that Restraint seclusion is probably al almost always inappropriate. Uh, and so in the same way that we saw a lot of the discipline suspension stuff, uh, school districts react to it by simply not doing it or hiding it or doing abeyance agreements to do it without doing it. <laughs> um, I feel like we're going to be seeing a lot of it because there is no formal uh, data collection process for room clears that didn't really exist until a couple of years ago. Uh, and so restraint and seclusion could be plummeting, room clears could be skyrocketing, but we're not going to really see that anywhere. And if you question the wisdom of um, lowering restraint and seclusion, you're going to be kind of put in a policy argumentative position of, like, oh, do you endorse putting a kid in handcuffs for speaking out against a teacher? No, but um, probably most of the time, almost always, obviously some exceptions, if there's a teacher who feels the need to put a hand on a student it's probably the right decision. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I've had congruent uh, experiences with seclusion and restraint. And 
a few other components of that. Districts, uh, for example, in Wisconsin have teams that go through a training and then they, they receive a card and then they can go, there are steps of verbal de-escalation and mm -hmm. then um, also physical restraint, physical escort. And of, of course, there's conditions, you know, you need mm -hmm. to use this um, if the student you deem is at uh, uh, imminent harm to self or harm to others. So if the student is, is in the hallway um, throwing things and the bell is about to ring, you know, you need to block off the hallways on both sides and reroute students all the way around the building or whatever you have to do because that wouldn't be um, an acceptable condition. So teachers are saying, we don't want to be on this team anymore. This team that mm -hmm. the state said, you know, you can get trained because um, we can be liable. And also our judgment is being questioned. We can go through the training. Uh, we go through it. We make this determination, but we'll always be questioned. And the, the whole aspect um, in work I've done, um, legal expert witness work, is looking at the standard of care that was applied um, to the situation. So it's always laminated to that context, that situation. But now everybody is coming in after the fact and analyzing and saying, well, he should have done this or it wasn't that bad mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Um, and I'm also seeing um, parents call uh, social services if a child has been uh, restrained and saying, my child now has bruises. So the next day at school, uh, social services or later that day is at school interviewing members of the, the team and that mm -hmm. that's so once you go through that um you don't want to be on the team anymore right because i'm an educator yeah. i need to look out for you know my career my best interests i can't have you know wherever these records and, and i thought i was doing what i was supposed to do and finally it's it is saying um we're just we'll call the sro we'll call the police and let them handle it and right. then immediately you're introducing law enforcement to this child for something that would have been a classroom or principal disciplinary action to, um, you know, even if it's noncompliance of uh, the student <clears throat> not leaving the classroom or, or leaving the desk or, or whatever it is. And right. It's like, call the police, call the SRO. Yeah, Save that a lot more too. Which is an interesting, <clears throat> I mean, so many of these things are done with this idea of trying to you know, fix the school-to-prison pipeline uh, and are sparked originally or in large part by viral videos of SROs, uh, you know, maybe throwing a kid across the room or shoving a kid against the wall or uh, a student saying that they believe that a police officer, you know, treated them very differently based on race or status. And the policymakers at the federal level, and I've, I've spoken to you a former Department of Education people under Obama, they fundamentally could not make the distinction between law enforcement response and school administrator response and could not parcel out the notion that decreasing the discretion of teachers and, <laughs> and principals would almost necessarily increase the role for school resource officers in handling routine infractions, right? On the one hand, they're saying we want to keep school resource officers far away from handling routine infractions, which I'm quite sympathetic to. On the other hand, they're telling school, they're telling teachers and administrators, uh, take the lightest possible hand when it comes to routine or somewhat more than routine infractions, and you're going to be liable if you do something that's somewhat aggressive in response to it, which shifts it 
to law enforcement. I mean, it's there hasn't been a, a clear study on this, but you can find a lot of districts, LA is the most striking one, where suspensions dramatically decrease and arrests dramatically increase. Yes. Um, you know, if you do not have tools short of a guy with handcuffs to manage misbehavior, then misbehavior will be managed by a guy with handcuffs. How about restorative practices? Uh, every once in a while, somebody will say, <laughs> well, it's worked in this setting or this setting, and, and they'll have some example, but, but that, will, that will come back saying, we need, we need restorative practices in the schools. Um, what's your response to that? Yeah, I, I used to take the position that, you know, I'm abstractly in favor of or at least not opposed to restorative practice, but it just kind of has to be, you know, done right and isn't really being done properly in many cases. I've, I've come away from that um, position <laughs> because I, I've, I've come to doubt that restorative justice really ever exists in practice. It's the logic of it seems to go that, you know, there are these techniques that we can use, and if we're properly trained and we have extra resources, they can go very well. If we're not properly trained, if we don't have extra resources, it's going to go very poorly. Uh, and we know that they're not properly trained, they don't have extra resources, and that these techniques really aren't employed. Nothing really happens. Right. Um, so I don't even concede that restorative justice is a good idea in theory anymore because the real theory of it isn't a particular way to sit students around in a circle and get to the root cause of it. What what happens is nothing or what happens is uh, a student getting a lollipop after assaulting a teacher and saying I'm sorry. So I don't believe that restorative justice is a possible, is a, I don't believe that restorative justice works because I don't believe that it happens. Um, maybe sometimes when teachers are really well trained and there are those uh, extra supports given, it can work. People certainly tell stories of it working, but that's not what happens and that's not what will happen. Um, and unfortunately, even even the argument that it can work if well implemented, I think, has been uh, a lot of doubt has been cast on that by this Rand Institute study of Pittsburgh, which was the first randomized control trial of restorative justice. They had extra training. They had extra support. The teachers thought it worked. The teachers said, this is making me a better classroom leader. Our school is safer. But the students disagreed. The students said, my teacher can't handle the classroom as well anymore. Classroom dynamics are getting worse. And test scores decreased in middle schools and decreased especially for African-American students. So the argument that restorative justice, if done, if implemented with fidelity, is an effective replacement for discipline is by the best study that we have not, not true um, or not, not real. And that's, you know, that's in a way the best case because it's, it's very rarely, if ever, implemented with that support. Usually it's just something that principles say in order to explain how they manage to make discipline go down when all that they're really doing is not meeting out consequences. The National Positive Behavioral uh, Intervention and Support Center, the National PBIS Center. Yeah. Um, so I started as an administrator in 2002, PBS or PBIS on a national scene, you know, maybe 2007, 2008. I remember hearing mm -hmm. about it at conferences and then starting to implement it. Um, the concept behind PBIS, uh, somewhat similar to restorative practices, but basically saying if we 
are very overt in educating students about the school rules. Um, for example, we make a, a three-minute video. Here's how we walk down uh, to lunch, and here's how we stand in the lunch line, and here's what we do at recess. Uh, and we give we give uh, tokens. So anytime, hey, um, I, I liked uh, the the greeting that you gave uh, to you know the, the other students that came into the class. So here's a, a paw that you can redeem ten of these for you know whatever it is a pencil. But um, so it's this this kind of token economy type type setup. But um, PBIS has you know it, it's been around for decades. It's I, conferences. I mean, people, this is their entire job. I'm a PBIS mm -hmm. coach for this building. Um, I question that. I want to know your um, your findings about PBIS. Um, I, I, I don't see that also as a model that is... Um, I, I think there's a, tacitly, we're, we're instructing things which tacitly kids know um, right. what to do. But now it has to look Good and and it's it, it I I have serious questions about the effectiveness of PBIS. Yeah, well, I think in some ways I have a hard time just distinguishing between PBIS and restorative justice because in practice it all blends together. Right. <laughs> um, the, a lot of people think that in the same way that restorative justice can be a substitute, PBIS can be a substitute. They usually point to one randomized control trial showing that PBIS led to better. Uh, a better school climate for elementary school students, but notably did not decrease suspensions. Um, so the argument that it is an effective replacement for suspensions really isn't supported by anything in the literature, nor is the argument that it would really work outside of an elementary school setting that supported. Um, which, as an aside, I think there's also been a really basic inability to draw a distinction in people's minds between elementary students and middle and high school students. I mean, the yes. idea that some things might work well for elementary students and might not work well for middle and high school students seems to be something that a lot of education policymakers can't grasp. Right. Like, oh, why would your sort of justice did well in elementary schools but not well in middle and high schools? I guess it wasn't implemented effectively in middle and high schools. <laughs> maybe, yeah. or maybe it works for first and second graders in a way that it doesn't work for high schoolers. I mean, on a, on taking my research hat off and just putting a, a human hat on, I'm somewhat kind of creeped out by the token economy, prize-oriented, explicit behavior gamification of PBIS. Um, I, I just find it kind of creepy. Um, and I wouldn't want my kid to be socialized in a setting where everything is that explicit. I would want the norms to be more implicit and understood uh, between students without having to resort to this external thing. That being said, probably is the kind of thing that a first, second, third grader could easily buy into, but when you look at teacher message boards, when you talk to teachers, right. your middle school students, your high school students, thinks this stuff's absurd. Absolutely. <laughs> just, they just Absolutely. think it's silly. And... Uh, and you know, I'm prepared to believe it can be good at the elementary level, um, but both the teachers I talk to, the dearth of any research to suggest that it's a good thing, and, and kind of just knowledge of the way that you know the difference between young kids and adolescents are, I, I, I think it's a not something that we know works or that we should expect to work 
and certainly not that we should expect to be a replacement for consistent rules and consequences. Do you see uh, a decrease in the emphasis on PBIS because, uh, you know, several states can go to their education department homepage and it's, it's right there. Here's our PBIS department. It seems like it's gaining. Oh, it's momentum. oh yeah, oh it's absolutely. I mean, there there was a there was a survey that was done of elementary school principals. Uh, it was featured on Education Week, maybe like six months ago, a hundred percent of elementary school principals said my school uses PBIS. Of course. Yes. Um, and also these elementary school principals say, and teachers say, and special ed administrators say, uh, that misbehavior is increasing substantially. And then the conclusion that is drawn from that is, oh, well, we need more PBIS. Right. Yeah. A tier four and a tier four um, A, and, yes. and it's or just better training and better implementation. I mean, I you can't conclude from that survey that PBIS is causing it, but if everybody is now doing this new thing, and everybody is also saying that things are getting worse, it doesn't follow that more of this new thing is obviously going to make things better. I think it's uh, you know you can't argue that it's clearly causally. But I mean, I I would argue that, but it's hard to do from from data. But it just it defies logic to say that you know this thing that is taking schools by storm that has certainly coincided with higher levels of reporting of problem behavior is evidence that it would work if we go even harder at it. So, so we know we know PBIS um, it has has fundamental issues for efficacy hasn't been proven. Um, uh, restorative practices, maybe some instances, but again, we don't have uh, eff efficacy uh, between a lit review of meta-analysis of research yeah. to, to indicate. Um, so what what about students with disabilities? Um, because th the number of students with disabilities uh, in the United States, what are we looking about? 15%, we have 55 million um, students. So, But in some schools, you know, we can have, you know, 25% of the students are identified with a disability. Um, oftentimes emotional behavioral disability, mm -hmm. um, something behavior related, but um, what's happening with students with disabilities and discipline? Uh, what's happening specific in the, that Venn diagram where those two circles overlap? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, been a, <clears throat> there's been a lot of concern amongst activist groups uh, Obama-era federal bureaucrats that students with disabilities are disproportionately disciplined. Um, because if you look at the aggregate numbers, they receive discipline more frequently than students without disabilities. And the assumption goes very quickly to, oh, well, this must be a product of discrimination against students with disabilities. This has been, to my mind, pretty conclusively disproven by Paul Morgan's studies. Uh, he's a Penn State professor uses national survey data to try to take into account more factors that would uh, you know, influence student behavior and finds that when you do, actually the entire disparity or apparent disproportionality of students with disabilities and discipline vanishes. Um, it is simply not the case according to the best data available that students with disabilities are being discriminated against when it comes to discipline. If anything, they're probably being discriminated against in the opposite direction. Uh, there was a recent poll by the Fordham Institute <clears throat> found that 66% of teachers 
think that a student with a disability will be treated more leniently than a general education peer, even if their behavior had nothing to do with their disability. Only 4% of teachers think that a student with a disability is going to be treated more harshly than a general education peer. Um, and that is, you know, that is more believable because when it comes to students with disabilities, there is this added paperwork layer involved. There's this added disincentive involved. I mean, if you know that, you know, to do at your second suspension, you're going to need to go to response to intervention at a six-week monitoring and training program, right. you're not going to do it. Your right. principal is and not going to want And that's just reconvening yeah. the IP. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. now we have to take 10 schedules and we have to have, have this meet right. Um, you're just not going to, you're not going to do it. Gonna do it. Um, it makes more sense to just let it slide or to do it off record. <laughs> um, just send the kid home without putting into the system at all. Um, and, and again, this is a, this is a place where a, a really wrong understanding of macro data by bureaucrats who look at a spreadsheet without right. any idea what these numbers mean, assume that these numbers mean that, that they're smart and other people are biased. This impulse filters down to the point to produce the exact opposite of, I mean, the exact opposite of discrimination. People making decisions not based on students and actions, but based on uh, fear of, of paperwork. So I think students with disabilities are, are uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it is, with them especially, it's the teachers that get in trouble if discipline is meted out. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Another another aspect of, of you know, with students with disabilities is I think it's less uh, common to have IEP goals that address behavior. I, I used to see more of that um, in the past and even social stories. And it, it's kind of maybe through the entire uh, social justice, social equity that, that behavior is, is also exiting. And you said student going home. Well, technically a student just can't go home. You'd have to put something in the log for the student so in the afternoon was it half a day of suspension and that's where you can write into the IEP and it's not always um, either ethical or accurate mm-hmm. to do this but the IEP might say um, the case manager principal can deem that the student needs a self self-reflective time and right. basically they're just sitting down with the parents saying that means they're gonna we're gonna call you and they're gonna go home and you look at the attendance and it's like oh they missed one day this quarter but you know they were sent home, which isn't recorded anywhere, and they're not receiving academic uh, instruction, not receiving behavior instruction, nothing that is improving uh, or helping that student to improve behavior and then also make that student safer when that student is interacting with other students at the time that they're in school or even out in the community. 
tell me about why Meadow died. A- Andrew yeah. Pollack, uh, Parkland, um, was heart wrenching. Yeah, for me as a as a school safety expert, um, I've I've known uh, parents who have had their children murdered in school shooting. Uh, some of them are very close friends of mine. Um, first, tell me about how you had uh, the connection with Andrew. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, you know, I first heard of the shooting on, on the news like everybody else, and it struck me about a week after that there were all these students coming forward to the media saying, we knew that this kid was going to do this. He brought bullets to school. He brought knives to school. He threatened to kill us. He threatened to rape us. He threatened to shoot up a school. We all knew that it was him while it was happening. And we saw something and we said something and they never did anything. And, uh, you know, as you and your listeners can tell, like the, the issue of administrators not taking action <laughs> for obvious and at times dangerous misbehavior is something that I've been trying to dig into. So I saw it when I saw this, I couldn't help but wonder, like, oh, I wonder if there was a reason why they didn't do anything. This kid is alleged to have committed, and I they did commit many crimes in school for which he was never arrested. Might this have had something to do with the school district being at the national cutting edge of trying to fight the so-called school-to-prison pipeline by aggressively lowering arrests? Um, so I wrote an article to this effect, which raised the question, uh, but it didn't answer the question, and nobody else seemed that willing to answer the question. It seemed as though it divided pretty quickly into partisan lines with a lot of uh, mainstream media, Democrat politicians saying it's the right. guns, it's the guns. A lot of conservative media kind of took the argument I made and the question I raised and assumed it was an answer and just ran with that as an answer. But I wanted to kind of know what went wrong and why, and a couple of months after I wrote that, nobody had yet answered that. I found a way to get down to Parkland. I found kind of an inn with a Broward student who had some friends at Stoneman Douglas, knew some teachers at Stoneman Douglas, and I traveled down kind of under his auspices to talk to some folks, and while I was there, Andrew heard that there was somebody from D.C. who was an education expert there to look into the school, and he got my number, and he texted me and asked me to come over to his house and explain to him what I was doing, because he was trying to contact every single person who he thought could help find him answers, uh, could help, as he always says, expose what went wrong and hold people accountable. And so I explained to him, like, oh, I've been, this is the issue I've been looking into. Here's why I think it might have had something to do with this. I want to talk to people to figure out what the full story is here. Um, and a couple days later, he texts me and says, you know, thanks so much, Max. Uh, you're going to be a tremendous asset helping me find justice for my daughter's murder. And I was like, oh, okay. I had only planned on getting a couple of sources to write an article. And now I now I'm have to be, now I have to go back and at least take one more trip at it. Right. And right. on my second trip, I found out enough about the what had happened in the shooter's life, what had happened with him in the school, that I realized, like, this isn't just a book. This, this isn't just an article. It has to be a book. And I told him that, and I said, well, we should do it together because I want every answer. Let's team up. I can help you. You can't find all these people without me, and um, I can't write a whole book without you, so let's, let's expose everything. And that's kind of how, how the partnership started. Tell me about um, your access to information you know what were some of the barriers that were that were put up as far as approaching um you know the districts uh, handbook uh, for yeah. example looking at looking 
for the handbook, interviewing students, interviewing staff, um, the data that you didn't find. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, the first the first and most glaring thing, right, is, is, is FERPA and the way that school districts use FERPA as a shield, right? I mean, uh, teachers were told very quickly, do not, we are monitoring every login and all actions taken within our student monitoring, within our student data service. So if we find okay. that you looked at the shooter's record and then info about the shooter makes its way to the press, yeah, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> Right. So the district uh, locked down all information from his records, wouldn't give them to the press, wouldn't you know, strongly discourage teachers from finding them. So his full education record was something that had been and was for a long time. Eventually we got it, I'll explain how in a second, it's somewhat of a holy grail to me. Like That's where the story is, but that's something that legally we're not going to find. The district has a very vested interest in making sure that people don't find it. And you know, administrators at Stoneman Douglas and other administrators who come in contact with them weren't going to talk to me for two reasons. One is I was looking to actions that they took <laughs> right. um, that might have reflected badly on them. But even if even if they wanted to, um, if they were to talk to me, their jobs would be on the line. They are legally prohibited from divulging student information uh, to a reporter or to a journalist. And that's, you know, that's a law that you should have. If I come around snooping for some random 16-year-old kid for gossip, that it's good the law is there to not <laughs> right. let me do that. But uh, that law, unfortunately, does not cease to apply when a kid shoots up a school. Um, so I had to talk to just as many students as I could find and as many teachers that I could find and re-interview a lot of them after having interviewed them once, twice, three times based on other things that other people had told me and try to construct a full account of what happened with him while also trying to get a full kind of documentary understanding of the district and its policies. I mean, one as one kind of funny aside, there, there was a, a policy document that um, showed that the school district had gone so far in trying to reintegrate convicted felons into the school in effort to fight the school-to-prison pipeline by building a pipeline from prison to school, they literally said that kids who are convicted of rape, murder, attempted murder, firearms-related offenses, uh, after 180 days in an alternative setting, could be put back in traditional school. And the district denied that this was their policy and took the document off the website, fortunately not before we got it. Right. Um, so, you know, we had to fight tooth and nail for... You know, all the documents we had, all the data we had. Eventually, once I kind of found most of the shooter's story and Andy had internalized a lot of it, I, I said to him, you know, we're, you're bas we're basically acting as your daughter's murderer's defense attorney in the court yes. of public opinion. Yes. Because our argument is that it's everybody else's fault, too. Like, if you're comfortable with that, you know, that's what his defense attorney is doing. Maybe they'll give us the records. Uh, that we've been looking for, and he approached the defense attorney and said, you know, give me all of his records, and when I take the stand at the trial, I'll blast the school district for all of its failures. And so, um, you know, after months of kind of scraping for all information, we finally got the full record, which was, uh, which was quite, quite explicit and quite, you know, quite horrific in a lot of ways. So what's changed... Um, 
since Parkland. But I, I guess what's what's gotten better, what hasn't changed, what's gotten worse uh, for student safety um, in Broward or nationwide? Let's do Broward, and then let's uh, do nationwide second. Yeah, in Broward, absolutely nothing has changed. Um, the school district was. I mean, they, they stonewalled, they, they covered up, they attacked their critics, they even attacked the families, the victims very aggressively in the public forum for calling for accountability in ways that uh, are despicable and shameful and insist that, you know, they did nothing wrong and that all their policies worked. Um, it got to the point where, you know, basically because these policies are framed as issues of racial justice and racial equity and because the families of the victims were questioning these policies, the families of the victims were slandered as racists by top school district administrators. Um, and they've been very, very insistent that nothing changed. The, the state investigative committee recommended uh, that the Promise program, this particular diversionary program that get, gives students three free misdemeanors a year before they're even allowed to talk to law enforcement uh, and, you know, cycle resets the misdemeanor count every single year, <laughs> every single year. Right. Right. Um, the state commission has said, like, this should stop. And the legislature is making some motions that it might, you know, make it illegal. But as soon as the legislature made a law saying that diversionary programs uh, like Promise need to report their data to the states, then Broward said, "Oh well, Promise isn't a diversionary program. It's an alternative to it's an alternative to suspension program." Absolutely. Um, and a lot of the families ran. Several of the fam a couple of family members ran for school board to try to change things. Uh, one friend uh, of a of a deceased teacher ran, kind of as a slate, uh, and all the families of the victims were behind them, endorsed uh, the idea that there should be new candidates, new blood, new leadership, and. Mo two of them lost, one of them got on, and, and nothing has changed there. Like no lessons have been learned, uh, and and it's been quite it's been quite sad. It's kind of questioned my faith in in local democracy and uh, nationwide. There's maybe some more bright lights. I mean, I think that one thing that ha one thing that happened in the wake of it was the Trump administration issued a federal school safety commission uh, that did about ten months worth of investigating and issued a 100-page report on school safety, most of which was uh, just a lot of best practices, the stuff that, you know, you as a security escort, I hope a lot of it, I hope a lot of it that you would agree with and say, like, yeah, I'm glad that this document exists, I'm glad that it's getting out there. Right. Um, and to the extent that it is, it's, it's providing useful information to school leaders. I think that um, it's been somewhat unfortunate that a lot of the reaction to Parkland was not informed by the full story of Parkland, which is to me far less of a hardware question than a software question, right? Yes. If, you, if yes. you take care of your students, if the adults make responsible decisions around students, then something like this doesn't happen. Um, but because the debate immediately went to either gun control or pro-school hardening, uh, we've seen a lot of schools take a lot of steps, throw a lot of money at a lot of ideas right. that are kind of shadow theater, um, that give the appearance of, you know, Completely. a safe exterior, but right. don't actually address safety issues that, whether or not those things could possibly deter or prevent or mitigate the instance of a school shooter, 
Uh, they certainly have nothing to do with how safe a school is <laughs> for anything short of a school shooting. Um, and I, I think that, that, you know, because the truth was so far, so long in coming out, um, and because a lot of the conversation already moved on past that, I, I, don't, I don't think the proper lessons were learned. So the youth code of silence, uh, kids, uh, 75% of the time when there's a school shooting, uh, somebody else knew or multiple people knew. And mm-hmm. we, we've known this National Threat Assessment Center, FBI, going you know, back from Columbine through Parkland. Um, but when you have a culture where if you report something, um, nothing, nothing is done. The student mm-hmm. is, is maybe yeah, short-term out, student is back. Um, their students aren't going to continue to report. I mean, that's we yeah. know that through Youth Code of Silence uh, research that once students feel nothing will be done, they will shut down reporting. Yeah, and, pro- and properly so. I mean, so, right. So we have seventy-five percent of the time. And uh, Bethel, Alaska, nineteen ninety-seven, the shooting um, in, in Bethel, Alaska. Twenty-four students appeared on a mezzanine overlooking the cafeteria area. One had a camera. And two had trained the shooter on the use of the shotgun, um, and they just watched it unfold. Nobody came forward with that information. So um, why Meadow died it and the, the failed policies um, and the, the failed practices of school? Um, in my work in School of Errors, pointed out $3 billion a year spent on school safety, over 80% of that fortifications, max, uh, fences, bollards, surveillance cameras, things like that. We're not spending um, on threat assessment, threat instruction, threat assessment, researching the youth code of silence. Dollars aren't going into that. Um, I'll, making sure that we have a range of placements, a range of services for students, um, placement options, which might be off campus or that, you know, we're, we're not going there uh, with the dollars. It, it is complete safety theater right mm-hmm. now. Um, and it's appalling. The, I, I, I sent you a, an article from the 74 million um, org, October 21st. Um, Mark uh, uh, Kier, uh Reber wrote about the National School Superintendents Organization uh, representing all 50 states. All 50 states have their own superintendent. State organization goes into the feds, or this federal organization, or this organization at a, at a national level. Um, for $18,000, you can become a school solutions partner with the organization. So basically they say, you know, uh, we we endorse your product or service or whatever it is. Yeah. And they have 18 that they do and it's growing. And, and, and that's just, so so we have these conflicted interests also um, that are at play and they are pushed forward when something um, of a sentinel nature, when Parkland happens, then fortification takes three steps forward. We have funding mm-hmm. for fortification and that's where people want to go right away. No one wants to get at root causes. No one wants to get lasting change. They want to go with the, the new bollards, the next version of the algorithm that they can put on um, their their computer system and say, you know, we're going to identify kids searching certain terms and stuff like that. And we just know that that hasn't proven to be effective. Yeah, I, um, I was contacted maybe six months after the shooting, uh, after I was like a few months into looking into it by a Washington Post reporter who was writing an article on, you know, schools, the school security industry. And the crux of an article was uh, 
Broward was either contracting or thinking about contracting with a, an AI company that would log into the you know video system and use AI to understand you know is there an intruder or are students acting suspicious um, and like this kind of this big thing that maybe it could work um, I color me profoundly skeptical of it certainly sounds very expensive and sounds like it's almost certainly not going to um, I just said to him and I would say to anybody else how about in, instead of trying to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to create an artificial intelligence to monitor student behavior you just don't pervert the judgment of adults <laughs> how about you just like let them make the decisions that they think are proper could we do that instead um, you know Andy my co-author he's uh, he he believes in school hardening to a point, right? I mean, he believes uh, in metal detectors and single point of entry and armed guard under the pretty basic logic that there's not going to be a weapon entering a building if there's only one point you can get through. Um, if there's a metal detector there and an armed guard, I, you know, I have somewhat mixed feelings about it. I just thought you'd you know, share one funny anecdote with you is that at one point he and a couple of the Parkland parents were on a call with a security school security folk thing that um was offering you know special coding that would make class bulletproof and and he was just like well how about you just like don't let the gun get into the school right and and the guy had had no answer to that right <laughs> um so or you know if you if you're gonna build all these gates how about you lock them um yeah. The Parkland shooter walked through an unlocked gate. It was supposed to be single point of entry. It just wasn't. It was door to the school was unlocked. Door to the campus was unlocked. The uh, the school had a lot of cameras. Nobody was in the station at first. The cameras weren't connected to local law enforcement, uh, which ended up probably costing lives. So there's there's a lot of, in my opinion, there's a lot of low hang low hanging physical fruit that could be done. Um, but unfortunately, these things become uh, a marketing opportunity for a lot of nonsense, but also a huge at the huge opportunity cost of looking into the fundamental question of like, are students do they feel safe in school? Are they being treated well? Are adults making the right decisions around them? Um, and this is something that you know, even even the awareness that there were these sorts of problems that played a role in the Parkland shooting. Um, only emerged because of this book published a year and a half later, and even then, because of the partisan nature of our of our media, as Andy has said, like you only if you're a parent, you're the only way you're going to know what really happened in Parkland, and you're the way you're going to know the questions you need to ask your students and your teachers is if you watch Fox News. <laughs> sure. I mean, beyond that, like the the message just doesn't get through um, either either through the media or or through the, um, or through that, because there there are interests in the physical hardware side of things, and all of the interests in the software side of things, the human side of things, uh, is to my mind on the wrong side of this. Right. <laughs> um, they're the folks who are pushing PBS, pushing restorative justice, pushing other interventions that will try to scientifically manage uh, teacher behavior, um, and there isn't really a product to push on the opposite side of that. The only product is have consistent rules, consequences, and trust teachers with the discretion to know what's right for their students. There's not 
much money to be made in that, unfortunately. <laughs> I'll, I'll work with districts about uh, how to um, develop student focus groups because everybody does surveys yeah. and, and surveys, surveys become long and uh, tedious and we don't know the level of understanding students have with surveys. So why don't we take yeah, four, six, eight students and for an hour have a discussion of, yeah, um, if someone were to start here next week, what would they need to know about our school for safety? And then work into some other questions about culture, have some constructs that teach people how, how to do that. That is so much more informative mm -hmm. than a survey. Um, and also addressing the, the, the youth code of silence. And, you know, um, and Max, you, you talked about algorithms and I warned about this when I presented on PBS in July. I said, algorithms will quickly identify every student who is goth as being on a watch list. It will, it, uh, Stephen King in 2021 um, will, you know, be on, be on a watch list. And um, so it, it, it's happening right now with, with districts, uh, you know, close to where I uh, live who have 24-hour monitoring of Chromebooks that go home with students. And suddenly, um, you know, all of this, this false triggering is mm -hmm. happening. But then it also creates where the students are like, I'm not going to use this. I'm going to, I'm, I, you know, it's a private, uh, I'm, I'm being um, scrutinized. I'm going to reinforce the youth code of silence. Um, the adults aren't trusting me. And, and we also have, have reporting systems which ask a student, how do you report a threat? And they'll say, I don't know. Do I go to an adult or I have a, my phone and we have an app. And literally one, it was 23 different, screens you had to go through before it was finally, do you actually want to make this report? And I looked at it and I said, there are three steps on here where basically they don't want you to make this report mm -hmm. um, because then they're going to have to investigate it and it's a document and it's a piece of data that they don't want to exist. So it's it's absolutely crazy the the, the response of putting systems in that just complicate things, erode um, tacit knowledge uh, mm -hmm. uh, professional discretion, everything is second guessed. Um, it, so I'll, I'll say from my perspective, I, I think we have more students coming forward and uh, communicating to an adult if they're aware of someone, a, a student who could be at risk of threat of harm to self or others. Now, oddly, I don't see that being celebrated. Um, for example, Sandy Hook Promise had the the one minute, um, I, I guess, I don't know, infomercial service, commercial, yeah. right, public service. And, you know, the first 30 seconds and then suddenly a kid with a skateboard, this comes in handy when I have to smash out the window. And uh, I, I contacted Sandy at Promise after I said he lost an opportunity because kids are starting to come forward. And, it, and we need to at least, if we have this going for us, we need to put as much wind behind it as we can. Yeah, we need to celebrate those people. Absolutely. I mean, and this is, you know... I, Absolutely. A Andy and I are still, you know, still somewhat ongoing partners in this. And he has a good social media platform. I just write op-eds, so it's not like I can write every time it happens. But every time we ever see a story of, like, somebody seeing something, saying something, and something can get averted, we, we try our best to congratulate the person who said something as a hero. Um, there were students who would have been heroes in, in the Parkland situation if, if their reports had been listened to. 
And that was frust- that, that's, that's extremely frustrating to you to analyze uh, Parkland and, and to say these parts of the system worked. Kids made the reports, people yeah. identified, and then the reaction, the response wasn't yeah. appropriate to the report. And um, once we lose, lose that integrity in the safety system, um, it's, it's really hard to build anything forward from that um, because people say it's, it didn't work at Parkland. Why would it work here or why would it work there? Um, and it, it, yeah, that, it's an absolutely devastating cascade effect of, of people not um, matching what would be a minimum standard of care, a, a yeah. basic response, a minimal response, um, just not matching it back. Um, so it's, well, well, Max, I am extremely appreciative for your work. Uh, you, you produce an incredible amount of content uh, going through, um, you know, the, your the different um, articles you're doing, the research component. You're, you're very in tune uh, with what's happening in student safety and student policy. Um, thank you so much for your yeah. work in this, with uh, Why Meadow Died. I I believe that book um, absolutely needed to be written. We didn't have a policy analysis um, in, and a, a, I guess, also a social policy analysis until Why Meadow died. Yeah. And it's people absolutely need to know that because they have no idea that this is what um, the, the structure, this, this, this arching structure that oversees <coughs> schools, that holds accountability. Most people, I mean, nobody knows. Um, you know, school safety, seven states, um, they, they, they completely defaulted down to the local level. Um, Pennsylvania, Hawaii, Indiana. So you go to the state statute and it says, you know, right down to the right down. Right. So then, you know, they put together a safety plan or they have data. Who looks at it? Nobody is even looking at the, the data. A lot of times it's one page that gets submitted that, you know, we did our drills, um, we have a handbook section that includes reporting threats. Everything's checked off and turned in. A lot of times only those don't get submitted. So you're holding people, I think, accountable. And the other part is you're bringing awareness. You're educating people to, I would say, the red pill side of yeah. safety that needs to happen. I have incredible respect for you, Max, uh, for the work that you've done. And thank you so much for uh, providing this interview to me and to my audience. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Broden on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.